Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Well, it's that time of year again. We've got the Chainalysis uh, 2023 Crypto Crime Report to talk about. Uh, to discuss that, I am joined by uh, the Cyber Crimes Research Lead, uh, Eric Hardeen. Uh, he's with Chainalysis. Um, so we talk all about um, the overall drop in crypto crime. Uh, get this, last year it accounted for 0.34% of all crypto on-chain activity. So not even 1% is crime. Um, so I'm sorry to have to break that news to you, Senator Elizabeth Warren. That is down from 0.42% um, of all on-chain activity in 2022. So crime is actually down. Um, we talk about all the other kind of interesting ca uh, categories of crime, like ransomware, darknet markets, the always interesting pig butchering, um, we uh, discuss whether security is improving for DeFi protocols, or is it just that there isn't as much activity out there and therefore as much money to steal? So Eric was really great with all his time and insights, and we got into all this stuff, which I always find really fascinating. I hope you do too. Thanks for being here and thanks for your support. Hey, Eric, how are you? Doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I always look forward to these conversations with you guys at Chainalysis, and it's time for uh, this one to go over the 2023 uh, crypto crime report. Um, so thank you very much for joining me. Uh, you have a really cool title. You're a cyber crimes research lead at Chainalysis. Um, I, I thought at the beginning, um, maybe you could just tell folks uh, at a high level kind of what you do and, and how you are able to go about kind of not only sniffing out crimes that are happening on the blockchain, but like how you actually go about, um, you know, following the breadcrumbs and like trying to put things together and 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 how it may be, um, for people who might not understand, with a blockchain, it's a public record and, and pretty much all the transactions are right there if you know what to look for. So I was, I was hoping you might just be able to kind of give us a big overview of that um, before we kind of get into some of the details and the different types of crime. Sure, happy to do so. Uh, yeah, so like my day to day is pretty. Um, well, I find it fun. I'm sure others do too. If you like, you know, numbers and trends and patterns and trying to unearth, um, you know, a, a detailed record of who's doing what. And that's basically how I spend my time in the main. I tend to think of myself as kind of like a macro oriented researcher. So when you're dealing with something like analyzing blockchain data. You could have kind of an investigative lens where you're very specifically looking for like a specific one address to another address to another address, trying to trace out the flow of funds from a specific um, incident as it moves along along chain. And sometimes we do stuff of that sort. But what I tend to do by and large is, is more big picture glimpses of things. So what's happening with the stolen fund landscape, what's happening with scamming activity on chain. And often it's taking those individual instances that someone with a more investigative bent would be looking at and aggregating them up into this higher level picture, which um, is sort of, you know, would culminate in something like the, uh, the crypto crime report that we put out each year. Um, what that implies to get to the second part of what you were asking is like you're, you're tracing over time, for example, a record of who's transacting with whom. And if you're looking at one of the 
various blockchains that we track, you know, it's going to be a record of an address sending value to another address or from that other address's standpoint, receiving value from a, an origin point. And that might be a direct transfer. It might be multiple hops. All of these sorts of things are possible depending on what you're trying to, what kind of question you're trying to ask and or answer. And where, um, where the sort of machine-readable blockchain kind of gets overlaid with something that's intelligible to we, uh, us mere mortals um, is through a process of kind of attribution where you'd be saying this address is associated with this entity. You may know this and a specific entity's name, or you may it may be some service, like for example, um, uh, I mean, yeah, to, to make it a little more concrete, maybe it's like the Lazarus Group in North Korea, right? Exactly. So it could be a Lazarus address wallet. Mm -hmm. It could be a darknet market like Hydra or one of those ones. And if you um, have a you know ground truth on that attribution, then you can you know start to make inferences about who's sending value to that particular service of a given type in the sort of illicit actor domain. And then you can start to produce charts and figures and estimates like we have in the uh, crypto crime report from there. So I would imagine if you do know like, okay, this is a, a hydro wallet, let's just say, and that's a dark net market that was very big in Russia. It got shut down a couple of years ago. Um, you would sort of have like a Google alert on that address and, and just like always be tracking like, oh, there's new funds moving around. Um, we should maybe look at that. Is that some, one way that you sort of keep up on this sort of activity? Well, you certainly could. If, if that was something you wanted to do, you could set up alerts for the flow of value, for example, like if you wanted to know if a wall, like wallets that had been previously dormant started moving, for example, mm -hmm. if there's something of that sort, which in especially in something like um, attempting to do recovery of stolen funds, that might be something you're very interested in. If the yeah. funds get moved out of a, um, a victim's wallet and they're sitting on chain, you want to know when they start to move because that might mean someone's trying to launder or off ramp, for example. So you want to be keeping a very close eye on that. It's certainly something you can do. You can also be a bit more passive in the approach if you're generally interested in trends over you know months, weeks, uh, quarters, whatever time unit happens to be. You could just be doing a periodic pull of the data to sort of aggregate data and say like, oh yeah, we are seeing uh, something anomalous happening here where you know Hydra share fall. I mean, Hydra may be a kind of an antiquated example at this point, but you know you know the, certain a, a darknet market its activity seems to be dropping through the roof. Something must have happened, even if you don't yeah. have warning through a different channel, like an OSINT or a channel, or you don't know a public event. If all of a sudden it collapses to zero, something's happened. And then you can sort of work backward from that on-chain record to try to find out what's going on. And in how many instances do you have like law enforcement come to you or ask you for help? And that's how you start, you know, kind of investigating. Is that a minority of what you guys are doing? Is it a majority? Like, how, how does that interplay with um, all the different, because there's a lot of, you know, we're going to get into this, but there's like scams, there's um, hacking, you know, there's uh, there's a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious how, how much of that is driven by somebody coming to you, um, maybe a regulator or law enforcement of some sort to say like, hey, we need some help with what's going on here. Well, I can't, I can't speak to specific numbers there because I'm on, like I'm on a different, I, I focus on public facing macro related research. And so from my standpoint, it's more um, that I'm tracking the ecosystem broadly, you know, seeing who's talking about what. Um, and from there, sort of trying to formulate um, interesting views on the data 
that like feed into these discussions that are happening widely. So like I'm not on I'm not an, an investigator per se, so I can't really comment on that side of it. Um, I'm a like a, I'm a, like a macro, yeah, macro researcher focusing on the public side, the publicly available side, like the crypto crime report. Okay, um, got it. So in that instance, um, would a story like what happened with Tornado Cash um, kind of be something that you were, you know, that's something that you're following and are are kind of like forming opinions about or, or something like that? Like it's sanctioning, you mean? Yeah, like how um, I. I was it last year or was it two years ago now? You know, when, when it got put on the OFAC list. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, it sounds like you're talking about you're trying to make narratives out of the data. Is that sort of mm-hmm. what, what, what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And like, just to, just to be clear, like narrative can be a kind of a loaded term because it might sound like you're trying to like, like, you know, tell a story like you're in Plato's cave. Um, what, what I, what that really means in context is like we, we, see what the data says, see what's of public interest based on that. And that's what we share. So we're not like cooking the books or anything like that. Um, no, I don't, I don't yeah, know like that. something I like that, like you're trying to make sense of it all so that you can tell a story right. about what's happening in the wider exactly. cryptocurrency market. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and in the tornado cash example, when, when OFAC did its designation, which was in August of 2022, that was definitely something that we wrote about at the time. We covered extensively in last year's crypto crime report um, because it was one of those big changes to OFAC's approach. They'd previously, prior to 2022, they hadn't been really focusing on sanctioning big services. Right. And then we had a cascade of Hydra, Garantex, and then Tornado Cash, um, which were all sort of a break with the previous pattern. Yeah, and just, um, yeah, with... Tornado Cash. It was the sanctioning was uh, a list of smart contracts, which <laughs> I found quite amazing. Um, so now, like specifically to the twenty twenty three crime report, what is there anything that jumped out at you, or what, what was um, anything surprising, or, or or something that that caught you off guard, or what what was kind of the one or two things that you came away with um, that, that were interesting to you? Well. I think there's um, a couple of things that worth bearing mention at the highest possible level. Uh, so, for example, we have, um, as we've seen in other years, an increase in the total amount of illicit activity that we tracked during the course of the year in dollar-denominated terms, and simultaneously a reduction in the share of that activity relative to everything we're observing on chain. So these are like two different ways of measuring illicit activity, whether it's in absolute terms, that dollar denominated amount, or as a, sh- a rate relative to you know overall on-chain activity. And it's one of those things that I find interesting and useful context for conversations like this, because it's basically, you know, you get two different trends there, where one's getting worse over time, dollar denominated amounts, but the, the rates kind of hovering at or even declining over time if you were to overlay a trend line. Um, All that's to sort of say that, you know, if you're thinking about something like crime, whether it's off-chain or on-chain for that matter, it's usually important to kind of focus or emphasize that rate dimension because it gives you a sense of, you know, the denominator, which means like bigger populations, more transactions, they they tend to be uh, associated with more of everything, not just more 
of the good stuff, and that's what the, the rate measure shows. But then the dollar amounts are also relevant depending on uh, your point of reference. And so we see some pretty big jumps this year in terms of the total amount of illicit activity that we observed. Um, and so, you know, I think that that kind of difference between those two ways of framing illicit activity is always one of the things that strikes me about the report um, uh, in those this sort of broad intro summary. Another thing that I think is worthwhile um, to kind of emphasize is that uh, like we've seen in previous years, a lot of specific forms of illicit activity, both scamming and, and stolen funds in this case being two examples, uh, actually fell year over year um, into 2023. Um, and in the case of scams, at least, that's the second year over year reduction that we've observed. So stolen funds is, doesn't quite fit that pattern because it was up 8% last year in the 2020 three report, which is on the 2022 year. Um, but it was pretty close. Like we're basically tracking an interesting drawdown in some forms of illicit activity that I think, um, you know, we can talk about it more. It needs to be kind of qualified and unpacked in terms of what that drawdown implies. But I think that that the fact that not all crime is just constantly going up and to the right is a, is a pretty relevant takeaway from the report. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I wanted to, to talk about that too at the, at the top here. Um, so just to put some numbers to what you're saying, um, if you account for all activity on chain, um, crime in 2023 was 0.34% of all activity. Um, that's down from 2022 when it was 0.42% of all activity. Um, so it's not even 1%. Um, and I, I feel like that's a really important distinction and fact to, to get out there to people. Um, especially, and I've written about this, you know, a lot and talked about it a lot when Elizabeth Warren and other politicians who seem you know, hell bent on kind of trying to destroy crypto are out there saying publicly that all it's used for is money laundering and terrorist financing and crime. And the numbers just don't back that up. You know, it's not even close. How do you, how is this being used, I guess, in the wider public policy debate? Is this something that, that you guys are, are, are trying to get in front of politicians and regulators and saying like, look, here, here are the numbers, let's have this debate, but you know, let's use, let's use some facts and use some research and not just maybe like ad hominem attacks. Well, I think we certainly view um, our efforts in this respect as trying to provide kind of a data substrate to mm -hmm. public policy discussions globally, where, you know, you want to be able to quantify, I think, to to the greatest extent possible, um, things like illicit use of blockchains. It's not. It's something where you can, you know, you could get focused in on a specific instance and then, you know, incorrectly read that as a generalized problem, for example. And what we're able to do, um, and or at least endeavor to do with this sort of um, estimation in the report is essentially say like here is an overtime consistently applied approach to measuring illicit activity on chain. And as you said, like, you know, I'd like to think of the, the, the share dimension as essentially a 1% problem. If you look at the longer term trend, it kind of goes like this, mm -hmm. usually hovering below 1%. And as we point out in the introductory section, there's some some qualifiers to that, like we improve our attribution over time, for example, which right. means more illicit activity gets counted, which usually leads to an upward revision. Um, yeah, in 2022, I, I was a little, I mean, not amazed, but 
your original uh, estimate was somewhere around two billion in in illicit activity, and then it, or sorry, twenty, twenty, and then it got doubled to forty billion, um, just you know, in the interim. So, and that's for people like that's as you guys find more addresses that are linked with illicit activity, and you uncover more, um, you know, bad actors out there. That number usually grows over time. It does, yeah. And just just very. Briefly on that specific year, I mean, there were a couple of other um, data changes that weren't like that's that growth, almost like 100 percent per doubling of the amount is not the normal rate at which we see uh, revision upwards. In this case, we've included things like the FTX creditor claims for 8.7 billion. We've included sanctioned jurisdiction for the first time, for example, Um in in that estimate for the year it's in every year now so it's like a wholesale revision in that particular case so normally the numbers don't jump 100 percent, but they would jump you know fairly consistently on any given category you might see you know 10 20 25 30 percent jump is not impossible yeah. depending on what kind of data data lag you might uh, have with uh, the attribution process yeah and so you mentioned ftx there and that was another interesting point in the report um because that's not an on-chain event. That's that was you know, uh, exchanges are not on-chain. The the money that's in an exchange is you know in different accounts, and and basically what happened was, you know, people made off with customer money, and that eight point seven billion dollars is is what the customers are claiming they are owed. Um, but and you after the the verdict, I think in December, you guys decided to include that as as a type of fraud um, for the first time. Uh, because it's off chain, what, was that a hard decision for you guys internally, or, or what? Uh, I know, like that's the first time it's happened. But w- was there any debate uh, inside chain analysis about what to do with that? Yeah, I mean, it is a tr- it is a tricky one, and as you said, it is a you know, the private order books of an exchange, for example, are not an on chain phenomenon, right? Um, so, in that sense it is a bit of a departure from what we normally would be tracking. Ultimately, as we note in the assumptions and so forth in the intro, what we decided on was, in this case, since a verdict has been rendered, we would treat that as an uh, as something of relevance to um, the estimation of crypto-related crime. Yeah. So this is one of those, um, yeah, it is one of those sort of ex- exceptional cases where, you know, if a crime was happening in an order book and then it, percolate and have Im- had broad-based impacts and this and so on and so forth it's kind of tricky to say how you should necessarily proceed but as we as we detailed this is a this is a case of relevance to the crypto ecosystem and so we decided in this instance to since criminal a, a decision had been rendered we decided to treat it as illicit in the course of 2022 and i guess going forward if there are other criminal decisions that come down that, that'll probably um maybe result in the same sort of thing where those those numbers get added into the, the bigger um, pot, I guess. So uh, what, maybe we could get a little specific here and talk about some of the ransomware and darknet market activity. Um, those were kind of outliers. They were both increased uh, last year versus 2022. W- with ransomware, are you seeing a trend there? What, what, what do you guys attribute that to? Um, and as people probably know, this is, you know, where... 
hackers or other people take over, you know, usually like computer systems and hold you, you know, uh, they say you got to pay us in Bitcoin or stable coins and, and then we'll like let unfreeze your hospital operating system or whatever it is. Um, but I'm just curious what you guys attribute like the, those increases to. Sure. Yeah. So um, what's interesting about those two areas, as you said, is they they saw year over year growth. Um, there is a an important base rate effect in both cases that needs to be brought up, which is in uh, the darknet market instance, 2022 saw the closure of Hydra, which was the largest darknet market at the time. It had about 90% market share. And it was closed in April, sort of through a combination of an enforcement effort and an OFAC sanctioning event. And while the, the ecosystem has always, over the long run, tended to recover the Darknet market ecosystem. Um, it uh, nonetheless made a fairly sizable dent because, you know, people pull back a little bit um, from using Darknet markets in the immediate aftermath of an enforcement event as they try to figure out, you know, who knows what, what markets are a good secondary candidate for use and all these other sorts of things. And so what we've partially observed with this recovery is a, is a regrowth back to baseline, the baseline trend, and basically it's a recovery in the case of direct markets. And something similar is sort of happening with ransomware. So we, uh, in our mid-year report, uh, which we published around July of 2023, we'd observed that ransomware was trending um, through the first half of uh, last year to be on pace for 2021 kind of levels, which would be a complete reversion back to the pre-2022 amounts. Because 2022 was a pretty sizable drawdown year over year, where we saw a decrease, um, if memory serves, like of several hundred million I from the year I prior. I remember that, uh, writing about it, and I think one of the reasons you guys cited was that people were um, getting tougher, and they were saying like, no. <laughs> Yes. More. So there's there's repayment questions. There's mm -hmm. there was um, disruptions to the ransomware illicit actor ecosystem as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There were a variety of factors kind of weighing in that kind of acted as an anchor on the 2022 ransomware ecosystem in a positive way. Uh, in this case, because so it that's means what less I find ransom. So fascinating about this stuff is like that the war, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine would affect ransomware, you know, overall activity. Uh, it's just that those knock-on effects I find just really, mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, it, so that's all. To, all to say, like we um, we did see an increase year over year. The year of the base rate effect for those two categories means what that increase implies is not necessarily a a sizable, it's not like the kind of jump we've observed in some categories in years past, where, for example, from 2021 into, um, from 2020 into 2021, stolen fund activity increased like 500%. It's not that kind of jump that we were observing. It's more like the base rate was low. We're seeing a reversion back to the trend that we uh, would have expected had 2022 kind of just not been there. Um, because both of these categories of illicit activity had some positives to them where you know, enforcement activity and um, greater resiliency in the case of um, targets of potential ransomware, these sorts of things were kind of weighing yeah. into the equation. Um, okay, yeah, that's, that's really great. Is uh, I'm just curious, um, and if you can't talk about this yet, you can just say so, but um, is there a market like Hydra that has kind of come in, you know, and replaced it? Is there like one big one out there that's sort of um, come from the ashes? Hmm. So we've um, we track 
that kind of activity quite a bit. Um, and we, we did so extensively during the course of 2022, because that was kind of like the burning question of that time was like, what's next? And what we observed was this, this interesting pattern where uh, a clear winner heading into 2023 hadn't yet been kind of decided. So what we saw was like OMG immediately in the aftermath of Hydra's closure kind of sprang out from nowhere. Now, what's interesting about that market was like the, it had an on-chain presence well before Hydra was closed, but didn't really do much. And then almost immediately, we saw a, a giant spike in activity, which sort of suggests, uh, you know, someone somewhere was running parallel infrastructure, was able to do some direction of people to that site as kind of like a common focal point of illicit activity. OMG then stumbled. Black Sprut, Mega, they kind of emerged from there. Kraken became a contender during the course of 2023. So you've kind of got this like multiple horse race kind of um, through so the course of 2022 and into Kraken the exchange, of course. Not not Kraken the exchange. Kraken yeah, we the should make that market. clear. Yes. Yes. Be very <laughs> clear. Powell yes. is not running a darknet market. <laughs> that is correct. Okay, it is Kraken the, the darknet dark market. Darknet market. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, another thing that another trend that's interesting is stablecoins have taken over um, as the kind of coin of the realm for most of, of the illicit activity you guys are tracking. Just a few years ago, it was Bitcoin uh, followed a little bit, you know, by Ether. But now stablecoins are like, according to you guys, it looked to me about about 65% of all criminal activity is, um, you know, people are asking for, for stablecoins like Tether or US dollar coin. Um, is what does that tell you? And and I, I just I got I'm, one thing that popped into my head was, would wouldn't that make there more of a trail? Because obviously you have to get into crypto, you have to buy your Bitcoin or Ether, and then you have to go to an exchange and get um, get your stablecoin. Um, so it just seems like there's another link in that chain that could could like you know be beneficial to folks like you or law enforcement who are trying to track where this stuff goes. Or is am I missing something in that? Um, so just one, one clarification, the, uh, 2023 by volume stablecoins was representing a fair amount of that overall aggregate activity by type of crime. We definitely see differences. So ransomware is almost entirely dominated still by Bitcoin. Um, scams is a bit more of a mixture where there's like a stablecoin scamming ecosystem and, a Bitcoin one and a, a bit of Ethereum and others in the mix. Um, and there's a, just a couple of categories where, where stablecoins seem to predominate, but you definitely, like, darknet markets is another example. Like, Bitcoin, almost strictly speaking, Bitcoin only. Okay. Um, now, to your, um, your question about, like, well, what does that pivot kind of imply in general broad terms? I mean, one thing that I would emphasize is... Um, Especially in well, in some cases at least, and we've seen a lot of examples of this during the course of 2023. Stablecoin issuers can freeze funds, burn funds, um, and so it, we have examples of that where illicit activity was recorded, and one of the issuers basically steps in to um, freeze the funds. Yeah, yeah, that happened with Tether not too long ago, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, exactly, and so. This is, this is, for example, like part of the reason you wouldn't see, in my view, stablecoins being used for ransomware payments. Mm -hmm. Because the ransomware operators, um, 
would be adding to their um, operations a new hurdle that seems, from my standpoint, to be kind of unnecessary. Where, you'd, why would they ask? Like, the, if they targeted a victim and asked for payment in a stablecoin, they're basically asking to have those those funds frozen because yeah. it it's doesn't take too much coordination. It's right? There's a centralized actor behind the stablecoin issuer. Like it's the stablecoin issuer who, who like right. you're saying, yeah, can do that. Exactly. So it's so it's the the operational risks that get added to an illicit actor's activities from using stablecoins are are not negligible uh, because of this phenomenon we're like we've been talking about like this ability to freeze and monitor and all that. Um, and so um, yeah we do see it we do see stables per playing a larger role uh, in 2023 than they have historically. However, it's it is confined to some specific uh, forms of illicit activity and not others, simply because using it in some cases is, um, as far as I could tell, would be just like a terrible plan. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I hadn't thought about it like that, and and I, but yeah, I think I was sort of like getting at that at some at some point with like thinking, you know, this is an extra step in the whole process. So why do it if you're a criminal? Um, why not just make it as simple as possible? Um, and then so. You know, we're talking about different types of scams, and, and this is always, you know, I've got to ask you about pig butchering because I just, I love <laughs> that term. And uh, maybe you could just like real briefly um, for folks just kind of describe what that is and then and tell us, um, we'll, we'll get into sort of like some of the findings that you guys uh, mentioned in the report. But yeah, sure. what is pitch, pig butchering for folks who might not have ever heard that? Yeah, so it's not the most... Um, flattering of terms because the pig in this case refers to the victim and it isn't the most descriptively clear ter term. I, mean, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, what are you talking yeah. about? Like, yeah. um, hard to what it refers <laughs> to it is essentially a tactical approach where scammers establish a relationship with victims. And through that relationship, it can be friendship, it can be romance. I mean, that's kind of a, a spectrum. Um, and I think scammers would be opportunistic enough to be willing to fall anywhere on that, where it's like a friend, new friend that would then direct you to a site to maximize your investment returns through crypto mm -hmm. or a romantic relationship where they'd be trying to obtain uh, funds from a potential victim. And the goal is essentially you build the relationship and you then leverage that relationship to get people to participate in some, usually some sort of investment related scam. So that might be, you know, through a friendship, directing them to um, some sort of like investment return scam, or as we document in one portion of the report, you might it might be even more direct than that. Like uh, in the approval phishing case, which we can talk about, it's more like you know, convincing someone to give you spending prerogative on their wallet, hmm. yeah. and then you drain it. This is uh, because there's you know these personal relationships that are built up. A lot of times, the reporting on this type of um, criminal activity is, is hard, right? Because people are, are kind of ashamed, and it's not something mm -hmm. that they want to admit to. So you guys have that sort of barrier, or not? It's a hurdle, I guess, for really figuring out what the what the actual um, level of this kind of criminal activity is. Absolutely, yeah. I think there are a few actually, like with something like scamming activity generally, and ones that have a big interpersonal dimension, like pig butchering. 
um, you have the you have social stigma, like the thing you were talking about, where people sometimes feel ashamed that they were scammed, they're embarrassed, and that yeah. leads to an underreporting. You also have the sort of like unwillingness to believe that they were scammed by a friend or a romantic connection where they just won't face the reality of the situation. And that would, again, it would lead to underreporting. And the interpersonal dimension also makes um, on-chain identification and attribution a bit of a challenge because it means it's often very individualized as opposed to something that's a scam that's orchestrated through some sort of centralized hub that's a bit easier to potentially track or identify and track. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of barriers. And, and as we detail in different, multiple different places, um, we do think that our scam estimations um, are definitely a lower boundary estimate of what we are observing in terms of scam-related activity that's probably significantly higher. Exactly how much is kind of a, it's an empirical question that would be hard to kind of um, guess and estimate at, but it's definitely higher than what we've got recorded as kind of ground truth at a lower bound. Um. So one other thing that, uh, that stuck out to me from the report was um, that uh, so decentralized finance protocols, um, you know, are, are notoriously uh, prone to hacking. Uh, they, they don't usually have great security. It's not like something that they, I think, uh, usually put first. Um, but it sounds like um, in 2023, at least, that the, the, the amount of... Um, funds stolen or, you know, just sort of the lost in DeFi hacks went down. And you guys said that potentially security is getting uh, better um, with the, with these protocols. So I just wanted to, to ask you about that. And, and do you think it's a coincidence or are you, do you, are you hearing from folks that you, you know, you're talking to that this is now more of a priority than it used to be? Yeah. So the DeFi related stolen fund activity was down a lot. Um, we were talking like 63% year over year. And I do think security is a factor in that decline. Now, there's others we could potentially talk about to like give a full context to that sort of thing. But we've, as, as we detail in uh, that section, you know, firms like Halborn sort of are, are seeing a greater emphasis on code audits for smart contracts, things of that nature. And those are all to the good in terms of improving the security of the ecosystem. Now, the one sort of caveat to the security dimension here from, from my standpoint is uh, we have had for, for DeFi a rough year and a bit. Yeah. Um, and what that usually implies is you'll get kind of a winnowing down of participants and you'll end with a, a core group that are trying to do it well. And so where the real test for this sort of security question when it comes to DeFi is going to be during the next bull market and whether new participants that come into the space to build new DeFi protocols, as they should, whether they adopt this sort of security first mindset that seems to be increasingly common in the current crop of market participants. Because once you get into bull market territory, you know, things can change. You could get back into a, you know, a, be first to market and think of security second kind of mindset like we've um, seen historically across a wide range of technologies. Um, so that's sort of a open question. What will happen next bull run um, is going to be a, quite a determinative factor in terms of how well security 
has improved, or at least how sticky it is going forward. Mm-hmm. But things yeah. like increased code audit rates is a great sign for sure. Yeah, that is good. I like to hear that. Um, still, my gut is that you know people are going to want to break things and move fast rather than like do a lot of security. It just seems. I don't know, it just seems like integral to this industry. And also I think it seems like there's such a churn and, and like new teams are coming out all the time. It's not necessarily the same folks that are putting out, you know, oh, they did this protocol and now they're doing another and they're doing a third. It's like, you know, you've got folks who are doing this for the first time. And so the security is kind of an afterthought, but people, please put the security first. It's it's better, it's best for everybody. Um, it definitely is, yeah. And speaking of that, um, we touched on North Korea and, and one of their, you know, the Lazarus group is is a group of hackers that's um, supported and, yeah, supported by North Korea. Um, I'm not sure that they're actually in North Korea. This is a question I've always had. I, I think they're probably around the world, but North Korea kind of gives them cover and, and, you know, allows them to use the nation state sort of for what they're doing. Um, I think in 2022, they, they had stolen something like 1.7 billion and then last year you guys had that more like 1 billion. What do you, I don't really have a question here, but I'm just curious if, if what, what the latest thinking on that is. I know, um, uh, you know, certain folks in our government in the United States feel like, you know, this is a national security threat because um, a lot of people think that that money is going straight into fund North Korea's nuclear weapons research program. Um, is What's the, What's the thinking there uh, on the Lazarus group? Are, are, do you feel like um, folks are getting their arms around those guys or are they still sort of out there and sort of have free reign to do what they're doing? Yeah, I think the um, an important additional data point when talking about DPRK-related stolen fund activity um, is while we did see that drawdown in value, we actually saw the, op- the opposite in terms of events. Hmm. Okay, so more um, events, so, less money stolen. Exactly. So okay. in that sense, you know, it's an important qualification to um, to their their on-chain related hacking activity because it's sort of like they're not doing less, they're getting less. Maybe they just weren't as successful sort of, as they have been right. in the past. Yeah. Right. And it, it um, I think it, it pivots back to the, the DeFi security question and some of the additional context that I was mentioning. In particular... There, at this point, there's simply less to steal than there was um, before. So amount of TVL, for example, is down across most protocols relative to their peaks. So that has implications because you're, the, the theft occurs at a given point in time. Assets that are locked and or taken have a given value at that point. So the amount stolen when it converted into U.S. dollars can decline, but it's an artifact of how much is around to steal. Yeah. Um, there's a great quip. Who said it? I forget. But it was basically someone was asked, why did you rob the bank? And the answer was, that's, well, that's where the money is. And it's sort of that, that kind of logic at a TVL level. Like We have to think through the DPRK's activity both in terms of the dollar amounts, but also in terms of the events, simply because there's less to steal. So I wouldn't overinterpret a drawdown in amount stolen as a sign that DPRK-related on-chain bad action is um, um, lessening necessarily. Yeah, that's great context. And I, I remember, I think the Ronin Bridge was a big one that was hacked for 
I want to say it was a billion or plus dollars. And I think, uh, I think North Korea was behind some of that. And so when, you know, bridges were new and, and sort of like not really great security, I think that those, those were a fat target. And I think, you know, like you're saying, not a lot of that money is still there to, to be stolen. Um, well, Eric, thank you um, so much for, for all this insight. I really appreciate it. Um, it's great talking to you. I, I'm just always fascinated by how you guys are able to track this stuff and, and, and kind of chase the bad guys around on the blockchain. It just, it just really is very cool. Um, tell folks how they can learn more about Chainalysis or, or learn more about you and, and uh, if they, if they want to know more you know, about what's going on. Sure. Yeah. My suggestion, if you, if you, this kind of content is of interest, we have our, uh, we have our blog at Chainalysis um, that I would suggest people go to. It's kind of a, a living record of the research that we do and we put out. It includes the pre-releases for things like the report. Uh, so all very publicly accessible, easy to access. And you can kind of work back through the archive if some of the stuff we've referenced, like the mid-year report would be of interest to sort of see where we were at and are thinking in July. And you see the, the pre-release sections of the crypto crime report. The full report should be out um, February, March-ish, that kind of thing. Um, so that would be the, I think, a main point of uh, interest for, I think, a lot of listeners. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's fascinating. And you guys have been doing this great work for many years. So there's a lot to dive into um, from past uh, reports. Um, well, Eric, again, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, it was great talking to you and, and best of luck at Chainalysis going forward. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Uh, thank you for your time. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And make sure to subscribe and rate us at Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Curtis Fritch, with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Ives. Mm -hmm.